I'm Brett Chang. And I am Jay Rosenthal, and this is your Peak Daily for Monday, May 7th, where we cover the biggest stories in Canadian and global business, finance, and tech, all in less than seven minutes. Okay, Peak Pals, so do you have a crisp $20 bill in your wallet? Because it's important, it could soon become a collector's item, as the currency is getting a facelift to match the new monarch, King Charles, which we'll talk about shortly. King Charles is going to replace Queen Elizabeth in our $20 bill and coins, though most Canadians are apparently not thrilled about the change, but 62% say they don't want to see Charles's mug on their money. Jay, are you going to start holding on to some cash just in case it becomes valuable? No, I am staunchly in the 62% who don't want Charles's mug on my money. This is a giant waste of money on our money. Well, as a Bostonian, it's personal to you. Yes, we said no to the crown long, yeah. long, long ago. We don't have to get into it now, but I don't think Charles needs to be in our money. It seems like just a waste of time to spend on like, what, an almost 80-year-old. It's funny, Jay, we keep things pretty neutral on the Peak Daily, but this is a hard position that you've taken. <laughs> I am an anti-monarchist. I'm sorry for all your monarchists out there. Yeah, this one, coronation or not, like, I don't think we need new money to replace the old money for any period of time. So I'm keeping my queen's money. Well, this is going to be a, a monarch-focused podcast today. We've just talked about in the intro. we got a big story coming up after. So for our first story, we've got King Charles is coronated. For our second story, AI and jobs. And for our last story, Alberta wildfires. For our first story, in case you weren't up at 4 a.m. on Saturday, waiting with bated breath and a full English breakfast, King Charles III's coronation was Saturday, generating fawning and furor, Brett. How was the coronation? Well, the first coronation of the social media era had similarities to the last one. Crowns, and beautiful horses, but there were also some differences. They had a sustainability focus and TikTokers were there. It also had an estimated $100 million, sorry, million pound, let's get that right, <laughs> price tag at TNC more than the 1.7 million pounds spent on Queen Elizabeth. For all its pomp and circumstance, the coronation still might be a boost, not a bane to the UK economy. Barclays projects the event could pump about 180 million pounds into the country by increasing pub and restaurant activity, no doubt, and bringing in millions of tourist dollars. I always hear these numbers. They do the same thing when they're going to build a sports stadium somewhere. They say there's going to bring all this economic activity. I always wonder if that's actually true. But look, in general, the monarchy generates somewhere between 500 million pounds and 1.5 billion pounds for the UK economy every year, depending on the estimate. Outstripping the estimated 354 million pounds total annual monarchy-related costs, which are footed by taxpayers. The coronation will also drive sales at shops around the globe, selling royal merch from plates and teacups to official King Charles Nespresso pods, fans are projected to spend about 80 million pounds on coronation tchotchkes. I'd like to be ahead of the tchotchke department for the coronation. That would be fun. Yeah, just little like uh, trinkets that you're making. Sure. But here's the thing. Tourism dollars aside, critics question the appropriateness of a display of wealth as high interest rates and inflation squeeze millions of Britons dry. A record number of families use food banks and 20% of Britons actually live in poverty. Not the royal family. And in Canada, King Charles is our, it really hurts to say this, he's our head of state too. But the reaction to his coronation here has been more of a shrug than a celebration, at least compared to when his mom took the throne in 1952, to which 100,000 celebrated on Parliament Hill amidst fireworks and horse races. And here's the bottom line. Support for for the monarchy is at historic lows in Canada and the UK. But if the coronation, and I guess Met Gala too, prove anything, we still love gawking at folks in fancy dress. 
For a second story from the role of AI in the writer's strike to IBM's hiring freeze, it's time to talk about how we plan to defend jobs against the robots. So Jay, what is that plan? Well, proposal from the union representing about 11,000 striking TV and film writers want to regulate the use of AI on projects covered under the agreement so that it can't write or edit material, be used as a source material, or be trained on materials they write. So the association representing production companies is dragging its feet. Their counter, put another way, is quote-unquote, we do not want to commit to anything until we know if AI will be good enough to replace whole writer's room. So this is what Ryan Broderick wrote. Meanwhile, IBM's CEO this week announced the company could replace almost 8,000 jobs with AI over the next five years. AI was also prominently mentioned as a replacement for humans in the recent wave of digital media layoff announcements. And here's why it all matters, Jay. So we've talked long about how machines will replace us, but it's never fully felt like a more serious possibility. Computer intelligence has expanded to the point that some of us have begun to fear it will surpass or even replace us. At least that's what Andrew Coyne wrote in the Globe and Mail. Even though some big names in AI have started to express fears about the harm it could pose to the labor force, many still see it as an opportunity to enhance worker productivity by automating more low-value repetitive tasks and actually drive economic growth. Now, to zoom out... This week, Joe Biden told execs from Anthropic, Google, Microsoft, and OpenAI that they have a moral duty to ensure AI doesn't harm society. Afterwards, OpenAI CEO Sam Altman said they were surprisingly on the same page on what needs to happen, which probably means new regulation. For our third story, wildfire season has arrived early in Alberta this year, forcing the province to declare a state of emergency over the weekend and expand evacuation efforts. So here's what's driving the news, Jay. Premier Danielle Smith declared a state of emergency on Saturday, granting the government extraordinary powers to manage the crisis. As of Saturday evening, there were 110 wildfires burning across Alberta, with 32 listed as out of control. Nearly 25,000 people across 20 communities have been evacuated in recent days, and another 5,300 residents are under evacuation warnings. The fires are happening because Alberta's unusually warm and dry spring has created ideal conditions for fires to break out. Temperatures have been 10 to 15 degrees above normal for a little while now, one Alberta wildfire official told reporters. We still don't have green grass and leaves all over the province, which means that the ground is very dry. And it matters because the wildfires are unprecedented for this time of year, according to Alberta officials. Over the past five years, the province has seen at most around 800 hectares of land burned by this time of year, whereas there were 122,000 hectares burning this weekend. Now to zoom out. The fires come in the midst of a neck-and-neck provincial election scheduled for May 29th. Both incumbent Premier Smith and opposition leader Rachel Notley agree the vote may have to be delayed based on these fires. Peak Pals, thanks for making us the most listened to business news podcast in Canada. If you got a second, one, not follow this podcast on your app of choice and leave us a review. And if you want more Peak, make sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter at readthepeak.com. Thank you, Brett. Have a good day, Peak Pals. And Brett, we're recording this on Sunday, so go Leafs go. Go Leafs go. Go Leafs go.